Section 2 of The Descent of Man, Part 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rory Lawton in December 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 3, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 19, Part 2. The Influence of Beauty in Determining the Marriages of Mankind. In civilized life, man is largely, but by no means exclusively, influenced in the choice of his wife by external appearance, but we are chiefly concerned with primeval times, and our only means of forming a judgment on this subject is to study the habits of existing semi-civilized and savage nations. If it can be shown that the men of different races prefer women having various characteristics, or conversely with the women, we have then to inquire whether such choice, continued during many generations, would produce any sensible effect on the race, either on one sex or both, according to the form of inheritance which has prevailed. It will be well first to show in some detail that savages pay the greatest attention to their personal appearance. That they have a passion for ornament is notorious, and an English philosopher goes so far as to maintain that clothes were first made for ornament and not for warmth. As Professor Weitz remarks, however poor and miserable man is, he finds a pleasure in adorning himself. The extravagance of the naked Indians of South America in decorating themselves is shown by a man of large stature gaining with difficulty enough by the labour of a fortnight to procure in exchange the chica necessary to paint himself red. The ancient barbarians of Europe, during the reindeer period, brought to their caves any brilliant or singular objects which they happened to find. Savages at the present day everywhere deck themselves with plumes, necklaces, armlets, earrings, etc., they paint themselves in the most diversified manner. If painted nations, as Humboldt observes, had been examined with the same attention as clothed nations, it would have been perceived that the most fertile imagination and the most mutable caprice have created the fashions of painting, as well as those of garments. In one part of Africa the eyelids are coloured black, in another the nails are coloured yellow or purple. In many places the hair is dyed of various tints. In different countries the teeth are stained black, red, blue, etc., and in the Malay archipelago it is thought shameful to have white teeth, like those of a dog. Not one great country can be named, from the polar regions in the north to New Zealand in the south, in which the aborigines do not tattoo themselves. This practice was followed by the Jews of old, and by the ancient Britons. In Africa some of the natives tattoo themselves, but it is a much more common practice to raise protuberances by rubbing salt into incisions made in various parts of the body, and these are considered by the inhabitants of Kordofan and Darfur to be great personal attractions. In the Arab countries no beauty can be perfect until the cheeks or temples have been gashed. In South America, as Humboldt remarks, a mother would be accused of culpable indifference towards her children if she did not employ artificial means to shape the calf of the leg after the fashion of the country. In the Old and New Worlds the shape of the skull was formerly modified during infancy in the most extraordinary manner, as is still the case in many places, and such deformities are considered ornamental. For instance, the savages of Colombia deem a much flattened head an essential point of beauty. The hair is treated with a special care in various countries. It is allowed to grow to full length so as to reach the ground, or is combed into a compact frizzled mop, which is the Papuan's pride and glory. In northern Africa a man requires a period of from eight to ten years to perfect his coiffure. With other nations the head is shaved, and in parts of South America and Africa even the eyebrows and eyelashes are eradicated. 
the natives of the upper Nile knock out the four front teeth, saying that they do not wish to resemble brutes. Further south, the Batokas knock out only the two upper incisors, which, as Livingstone remarks, gives the face a hideous appearance, owing to the prominence of the lower jaw. But these people think the presence of the incisors most unsightly, and on beholding some Europeans cried out, Look at the great teeth! The chief Sebetuani tried in vain to alter this fashion. In various parts of Africa and in the Malay archipelago, the natives file the incisors into points, like those of a saw, or pierce them with holes, into which they insert studs. As the face with us is chiefly admired for its beauty, so with savages it is the chief seat of mutilation. In all quarters of the world the septum, and more rarely the wings of the nose, are pierced, rings, sticks, feathers, and other ornaments being inserted into the holes. The ears are everywhere pierced and similarly ornamented, and with the botocudos and lenguas of South America the hole is gradually so much enlarged that the lower edge touches the shoulder. In North and South America and in Africa either the upper or lower lip is pierced, and with the botocudos the hole in the lower lip is so large that a disc of wood, four inches in diameter, is placed in it. Mantegaza gives a curious account of the shame felt by a South American native, and of the ridicule which he excited, when he sold his tembeta, the large coloured piece of wood which is passed through the hole. In Central Africa the women perforate the lower lip and wear a crystal, which, from the movement of the tongue, has a wriggling motion, indescribably ludicrous during conversation. The wife of the chief of Latuka told Sir S. Baker that Lady Baker would be much improved if she would extract her four front teeth from the lower jaw and wear the long-pointed polished crystal in her under lip. Further south, with the Makalolo, the upper lip is perforated, and a large metal and bamboo ring, called a palele, is worn in the hole. This caused the lip in one case to project two inches beyond the tip of the nose, and when the lady smiled, the contraction of the muscles elevated it over the eyes. Why do the women wear these things? The venerable chief, Chinsordi, was asked. Evidently surprised at such a stupid question, he replied, For beauty. They are the only beautiful things women have. Men have beards, women have none. What kind of a person would she be without the palele? She would not be a woman at all, with a mouth like a man, but no beard. Hardly any part of the body which can be unnaturally modified has escaped. The amount of suffering thus caused must have been extreme, for many of the operations require several years for their completion, so that the idea of their necessity must be imperative. The motives are various. The men paint their bodies to make themselves appear terrible in battle. Certain mutilations are connected with religious rites, or they mark the age of puberty or the rank of the man, or they serve to distinguish the tribes. Amongst savages the same fashions prevail for long periods, and thus mutilations, from whatever cause first made, soon come to be valued as distinctive marks. Sir S. Baker, speaking of the natives of Central Africa, says, Every tribe has a distinct and unchanging fashion for dressing the hair. See Agassiz's journey in Brazil, an invariability of the tattooing of Amazonian Indians. But self-adornment, vanity, and the admiration of others seem to be the commonest motives. In regard to tattooing, I was told by the missionaries in New Zealand that when they tried to persuade some girls to give up the practice, they answered, We must just have a few lines on our lips, else when we grow old we shall be so very ugly. With the men of New Zealand, a most capable judge says, To have fine tattooed faces was the great ambition of the young, both to render themselves attractive to the ladies and conspicuous in war.
A star tattooed on the forehead and a spot on the chin are thought by the women in one part of Africa to be irresistible attractions. In most, but not all parts of the world, the men are more ornamented than the women, and often in a different manner. Sometimes, though rarely, the women are hardly at all ornamented. As the women are made by savages to perform the greatest share of the work, and as they are not allowed to eat the best kinds of food, so it accords with the characteristic selfishness of man that they should not be allowed to obtain or use the finest ornaments. Lastly, it is a remarkable fact, as proved by the foregoing quotations, that the same fashions in modifying the shape of the head, in ornamenting the hair, in painting, tattooing, in perforating the nose, lips or ears, in removing or filing the teeth, etc., now prevail, and have long prevailed, in the most distant quarters of the world. It is extremely improbable that these practices, followed by so many distinct nations, should be due to tradition from any common source. They indicate the close similarity of the mind of man, to whatever race he may belong, just as do the almost universal habits of dancing, masquerading, and making rude pictures. Having made these preliminary remarks on the admiration felt by savages for various ornaments, and for deformities most unsightly in our eyes, let us see how far the men are attracted by the appearance of their women, and what are their ideas of beauty. I have heard it maintained that savages are quite indifferent about the beauty of their women, valuing them solely as slaves. It may therefore be well to observe that this conclusion does not at all agree with the care which the women take in ornamenting themselves, or with their vanity. Burchell gives an amusing account of a bushwoman who used as much grease, red ochre, and shining powder, as would have ruined any but a very rich husband. She displayed also much vanity and too evident a consciousness of her superiority. Mr. Winwood Reed informs me that the negroes of the west coast often discuss the beauty of their women. Some competent observers have attributed the fearfully common practice of infanticide, partly to the desire felt by the women to retain their good looks. In several regions the women wear charms and use love filters to gain the affections of the men, and Mr. Brown enumerates four plants used for this purpose by the women of northwestern America. Hearn, an excellent observer, who lived many years with the American Indians, says, In speaking of the women, ask a northern Indian what is beauty, and he will answer, a broad flat face, small eyes, high cheekbones, three or four broad black lines across each cheek, a low forehead, a large broad chin, a clumsy hook nose, a tawny hide, and breasts hanging down to the belt. Pallas, who visited the northern parts of the Chinese Empire, says, those women are preferred who have the Manchu form, that is to say, a broad face, high cheekbones, very broad noses, and enormous ears. And Focht remarks that the obliquity of the eye, which is proper to the Chinese and Japanese, is exaggerated in their pictures for the purpose, as it seems, of exhibiting its beauty, as contrasted with the eye of the red-haired barbarians. It is well known, as Hook repeatedly remarks, that the Chinese of the interior think Europeans hideous, with their white skins and prominent noses. The nose is far from being too prominent, according to our ideas, in the natives of Ceylon. Yet, the Chinese in the seventh century, accustomed to the flat features of the Mongol races, were surprised at the prominent noses of the Singhalese, and Tsang described them as having the beak of a bird with the body of a man. Finlayson, after minutely describing the people of Cochin China, says that their rounded heads and faces are their chief characteristics, and he adds, the roundness of the whole countenance is more striking in the women, who are reckoned beautiful in proportion as they display this form of face. 
The Siamese have small noses with divergent nostrils, a wide mouth, rather thick lips, a remarkably large face with very high and broad cheekbones. It is, therefore, not wonderful that beauty according to our notion is a stranger to them, yet they consider their own females to be much more beautiful than those of Europe. It is well known that with many Hottentot women the posterior part of the body projects in a wonderful manner. They are steatopygus, and Sir Andrew Smith is certain that this peculiarity is greatly admired by the men. He once saw a woman who was considered a beauty, and she was so immensely developed behind, that when seated on level ground she could not rise, and had to push herself along until she came to a slope. Some of the women in various negro tribes have the same peculiarity, and, according to Burton, the Somal men are said to choose their wives by ranging them in a line, and by picking her out who projects farthest the turgo. Nothing can be more hateful to a negro than the opposite form. With respect to colour, the negroes rallied Mungo Park on the whiteness of his skin and the prominence of his nose, both of which they considered as unsightly and unnatural conformations. He in return praised the glossy jet of their skins and the lovely depression of their noses. This, they said, was honey-mouth. Nevertheless, they gave him food. The African moors, also, knitted their brows and seemed to shudder at the whiteness of his skin. On the eastern coast, the negro boys, when they saw Burton, cried out, look at the white man, does he not look like a white ape? On the western coast, as Mr. Winwood Reed informs me, the negroes admire a very black skin more than one of a lighter tint. But their horror of whiteness may be attributed, according to this same traveller, partly to the belief held by most negroes that demons and spirits are white, and partly to their thinking it a sign of ill health. The Banyai of the more southern part of the continent are negroes, but a great many of them are of a light coffee and milk colour, and, indeed, this colour is considered handsome throughout the whole country, so that here we have a different standard of taste. With the Kaffirs, who differ much from negroes, the skin, except among the tribes near Delagoa Bay, is not usually black, the prevailing colour being a mixture of black and red, the most common shade being chocolate. Dark complexions, as being most common, are naturally held in the highest esteem. To be told that he is light-coloured, or like a white man, would be deemed a very poor compliment by a Kaffir. I have heard of one unfortunate man who was so very fair that no girl would marry him. One of the titles of the Zulu king is, You Who Are Black. Mr. Galton, in speaking to me about the natives of South Africa, remarked that their ideas of beauty seem very different from ours, for in one tribe two slim, slight, and pretty girls were not admired by the natives. Turning to other quarters of the world, in Java a yellow, not a white girl, is considered, according to Madame Pfeiffer, a beauty. A man of Cochin, China, spoke with contempt of the wife of the English ambassador, that she had white teeth like a dog, and a rosy colour like that of potato flowers. We have seen that the Chinese dislike our white skin, and that the North Americans admire a tawny hide. In South America, the Uracaras, who inhabit the wooded, damp slopes of the eastern Cordillera, are remarkably pale-coloured, as their name in their own language expresses. Nevertheless, they consider European women as very inferior to their own. In several of the tribes of North America, the hair on the head grows to a wonderful length, and Catlin gives a curious proof how much this is esteemed, for the chief of the crows was elected to this office from having the longest hair of any man in the tribe, namely ten feet and seven inches. The Aymaras and Quichuas of South America likewise have very long hair, and this, as Mr. D. Forbes informs me, is so much valued as a beauty that cutting it off was the severest punishment which he could inflict on them.
in both the northern and southern halves of the continent the natives sometimes increase the apparent length of their hair by weaving it into fibrous substances although the hair on the head is thus cherished that on the face is considered by the north american indians as very vulgar and every hair is carefully eradicated this practice prevails throughout the american continent from vancouver's island in the north to tierra del fuego in the south when york minster a fuegan on board the beagle was taken back to his country the natives told him he ought to pull out the few short hairs on his face they also threatened a young missionary who was left for a time with them to strip him naked and pluck the hair from his face and body yet he was far from being a hairy man this fashion is carried so far that the indians of paraguay eradicate their eyebrows and eyelashes saying that they do not wish to be like horses it is remarkable that throughout the world the races which are almost completely destitute of a beard dislike hairs on the face and body and take pains to eradicate them the kalmucks are beardless and they are well known like the americans to pluck out all straggling hairs and so it is with the polynesians some of the malays and the siamese mr veitch states that the japanese ladies all objected to our whiskers considering them very ugly and told us to cut them off and be like japanese men the new zealanders have short curled beards yet they formerly plucked out the hairs on the face they had a saying that there is no woman for a hairy man but it would appear that the fashion has changed in new zealand perhaps owing to the presence of europeans and i am assured that beards are now admired by the maoris on the other hand bearded races admire and greatly value their beards among the anglo-saxons every part of the body had a recognized value the loss of the beard being estimated at twenty shillings while the breaking of a thigh was fixed at only twelve in the east men swear solemnly by their beards we have seen that chinsurdi the chief of the makalolo in africa thought that beards were a great ornament in the pacific the fijian's beard is profuse and bushy and is his greatest pride whilst the inhabitants of the adjacent archipelagos of tonga and samoa are beardless and abhor a rough chin in one island alone of the elise group the men are heavily bearded and not a little proud thereof we thus see how widely the different races of man differ in their taste for the beautiful in every nation sufficiently advanced to have made effigies of their gods or of their deified rulers the sculptors no doubt have endeavoured to express their highest ideal of beauty and grandeur under this point of view it is well to compare in our mind the jupiter or apollo of the greeks with the egyptian or assyrian statues and these with their hideous bas-reliefs in the ruined buildings of central america i have met with very few statements opposed to this conclusion mr winwood reed however who has ample opportunities for observation not only with the negroes of the west coast of africa but with those of the interior who have never associated with europeans is convinced that their ideas of beauty are on the whole the same as ours and dr rolfs writes to me to the same effect with respect to bornu and the countries inhabited by the pullo tribes mr reed found that he agreed with the negroes in their estimation of the beauty of the native girls and that their appreciation of the beauty of european women corresponded with ours they admire long hair and use artificial means to make it appear abundant they admire also a beard though themselves very scantily provided mr reed feels doubtful what kind of nose is most appreciated a girl has been heard to say i do not want to marry him he has got no nose and this shows that a very flat nose is not admired we should however bear in mind that the depressed broad noses and projecting jaws of the negroes of the west coast are exceptional types with the inhabitants of africa 
Notwithstanding the foregoing statements, Mr. Reed admits that negroes do not like the colour of our skin, they look on blue eyes with aversion, and they think our noses too long and our lips too thin. He does not think it probable that negroes would ever prefer the most beautiful European woman, on the mere grounds of physical admiration, to a good-looking negress. The Fuegians, as I have been informed by a missionary who long resided with them, consider European women as extremely beautiful, but from what we have seen of the judgment of the other aborigines of America, I cannot but think that this must be a mistake, unless indeed the statement refers to the few Fuegians who have lived for some time with Europeans, and who must consider us as superior beings. I should add that a most experienced observer, Captain Burton, believes that a woman whom we consider beautiful is admired throughout the world. The general truth of the principle, long ago insisted on by Humboldt, that man admires and often tries to exaggerate whatever characters nature may have given him, is shown in many ways. The practice of beardless races extirpating every trace of a beard, and often all the hairs on the body affords one illustration. The skull has been greatly modified during ancient and modern times by many nations, and there can be little doubt that this has been practiced, especially in North and South America, in order to exaggerate some natural and admired peculiarity. Many American Indians are known to admire a head so extremely flattened as to appear to us idiotic. The natives on the northwestern coast compress the head into a pointed cone, and it is their constant practice to gather the hair into a knot on the top of the head, for the sake, as Dr. Wilson remarks, of increasing the apparent elevation of the favourite conoid form. The inhabitants of Arakan admire a broad, smooth forehead, and in order to produce it they fasten a plate of lead on the heads of the newborn children. On the other hand, a broad, well-rounded occiput is considered a great beauty by the natives of the Fiji Islands. As with the skull, so with the nose. The ancient Huns during the age of Attila were accustomed to flatten the noses of their infants with bandages, for the sake of exaggerating a natural conformation. With the Tahitians, to be called long nose is considered as an insult, and they compress the noses and foreheads of their children for the sake of beauty. The same holds with the Malays of Sumatra, the Hottentots, certain Negroes, and the natives of Brazil. The Chinese have by nature unusually small feet, and it is well known that the women of the upper classes distort their feet to make them still smaller. Lastly, Humboldt thinks that the American Indians prefer colouring their bodies with red paint in order to exaggerate their natural tint, and until recently European women added to their naturally bright colours by rouge and white cosmetics, but it may be doubted whether barbarous nations have generally had any such intention in painting themselves. In the fashions of our own dress we see exactly the same principle and the same desire to carry every point to an extreme. We exhibit, also, the same spirit of emulation. But the fashions of savages are far more permanent than ours, and whenever their bodies are artificially modified, this is necessarily the case. The Arab women of the Upper Nile occupy about three days in dressing their hair. They never imitate other tribes, but simply vie with each other in the superlativeness of their own style. Dr. Wilson, in speaking of the compressed skulls of various American races, adds, Such usages are among the least eradicable, and long survive the shock of revolutions that change dynasties and efface more important national peculiarities. The same principle comes into play in the art of breeding, and we can thus understand, as I have elsewhere explained, the wonderful development of the many races of animals and plants which have been kept merely for ornament. Fanciers always wish each character to be somewhat increased. They do not admire a medium standard. They certainly do not desire any great and abrupt change in the character of their breeds. They admire solely what they are accustomed to, but they ardently desire to see each characteristic feature a little more developed. 
The senses of man and of the lower animals seem to be so constituted that brilliant colours in certain forms, as well as harmonious and rhythmical sounds, give pleasure and are called beautiful. But why this should be so we know not. It is certainly not true that there is in the mind of man any universal standard of beauty with respect to the human body. It is, however, possible that certain tastes may in the course of time become inherited, though there is no evidence in favour of this belief, and if so, each race would possess its own innate ideal standard of beauty. It has been argued that ugliness consists in an approach to the structure of the lower animals, and no doubt this is partly true with the more civilised nations, in which intellect is highly appreciated, but this explanation will hardly apply to all forms of ugliness. The men of each race prefer what they are accustomed to, they cannot endure any great change, but they like variety and admire each characteristic carried to a moderate extreme. Men accustomed to a nearly oval face, to straight and regular features, and to bright colours admire, as we Europeans know, these points when strongly developed. On the other hand, men accustomed to a broad face, with high cheekbones, a depressed nose, and a black skin, admire these peculiarities when strongly marked. No doubt characters of all kinds may be too much developed for beauty. Hence a perfect beauty, which implies many characters modified in a particular manner, will be in every race a prodigy. As the great anatomist Bichat long ago said, if every one were cast in the same mould, there would be no such thing as beauty. If all our women were to become as beautiful as the Venus de Medici, we should for a time be charmed, but we should soon wish for variety, and as soon as we had obtained variety, we should wish to see certain characters a little exaggerated beyond the then existing common standard. End of section 2